Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I'm really excited to be talking to one of my favorite lab guys um, on the planet, <laughs> Dr. David Quick. Uh, you know him uh, from his, his longtime work at Dr. Stata. Let me give you a little bit of his background. He received his BS and MS degrees in human nutrition from Virginia Tech and a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from the University of Illinois. After, five, after a five-year stint as a research associate at Cornell, he was a senior cardiovascular pharmacologist for seven years with a major pharmaceutical company. David has been a hands-on researcher for over 40 years and has numerous peer-reviewed publications. He's adamant about scientific integrity, which is one of the reasons I love to pick your brain, David, um, especially as it's applied to diagnostic testing. He's committed to helping clinicians make informed decisions regarding the validity of esoteric lab testing in the realm of functional medicine. Again, a really important tool. Um, and for the past 23 years, David's happily served as the VP of Scientific Support for Doctors Data. Dr. Quig, welcome to New Frontiers. Oh, greetings, Kara. It's great to be back for more of your hard-hitting interrogations. <laughs> right. Well, let's just jump right in. I mean, Doctors Data, you guys have been doing stool testing forever. I mean, you're really one of the earliest folks to offer comprehensive um, stool analysis. And now you've got a new test that I want to pick your brains on, the GI360 Um just, you know what, give me a little bit of the history. I, I need to, I just want to know it now that I've opened with that question. I'm, I'm curious about it. And um, your movement to adopting PCR. Uh, yes. Um, you know, we had a, a, a very sound time-tested uh, comprehensive stool analysis test for many years. Um, and our, you know, not to blow my horn, but um, our microbiology was second to none as um, commented on by, you know, major university microbiologists that visited the lab. Um, but times change and um, we change with the times, albeit slowly. Um, and we've had major additions. Um, those additions have been the addition of complementary technology, that being molecular, PCR, we'll just call it PCR. And we added uh, two different platforms um, within the realm of PCR. One platform uh, is applied to a very targeted view um, of the microbiome, looking at abundance and diversity of what is considered to be the clinically most important um, bacteria. So it's not a microbiome test, but a very focused view. And it's actually uh, been um, CE marked, um, uh, cleared in the European Union as a dysbiosis test for uh, clinical application. The second platform is the more traditional um, <clears throat> gastrointestinal pathogens panel, which is an FDA-approved platform, uh, cleared platform, uh, extensively validated, and assesses uh, something like 20, 23 different um, pathogenic bacteria, viruses, and parasites. 
So that as well was um, extensively tested across multi uh, research facilities and, and not, just, uh, not just an in-house developed test. Now, I'm, I'm not implying that in-house developed tests can't be good. It's just, we, we really like to um, focus on and use things that have been really vetted and validated across different laboratories. And the reason, the reason we added the, the PCR is, is quite frankly, because no single methodology uh, answers all of the clinically relevant questions about the microbes. You know, there's pros and cons of molecular, there's pros and cons of culture. So we, we added the PCR and retained our extensive culture um, and uh, O&P. All right. I gotta stop you there because you've thrown out a ton of information. <laughs> and I just want to tease it out a little bit. It's so the dysbiosis index is 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 incredibly interesting. And that's the first aspect of this new test that you've um, that you're offering now. And it's neat that it's um, it's established as a diagnostic tool. I mean, can you just kind of talk that through how they're using it in, in the EU? And, you know, just maybe a little bit more about what it is and how a clinician might use it. And I know there are quite a few publications on it. So if you can just walk through the dysbiosis index and then I'm gonna pick your brain on the, um, the pathogen uh, portion yeah. of the test. Yeah, the dysbiosis um, test or index was really developed um, and, um, and validated in the clinical setting. So these, this group of Norwegian um, microbiologists and molecular biologists, they, they looked at the literature regarding, you know, what is different between the microbiomes in people with IBS and IBD against, you know, um, normal biosis. And so based on the literature, um, they then proceeded and um, came up with a final combination of 45 different probes. And in clinical validation, in applying these probes, found that it was very powerful at discerning between uh, dysbiosis and normal biosis, dysbiosis being um, in IBS as per Rome 3 criteria and IBD by scoping uh, and biopsy. So not just saying, well, this is a normal population and this is abnormal. They did it with a clinical endpoint. Mm -hmm. And so um, originally it was set up to identify dysbiosis with a dysbiosis index algorithmically derived from those 45 different uh, probes or targets um, into a single digit. And so anything greater than three on a scale of one to five or anything greater than two is considered variable uh, degrees of dysbiosis. And then, so looking at the very first page of the report, that dysbiosis index is provided. Um, and it's really interesting. And then, you know, on the next three pages, you can look at all those 45 different probes that are, you know, genus and species of bacteria. Um, but it's so simple to look at that. And what's fascinating is that it's, it's a separate component. It's a test within the GI 360. It is specifically for dysbiosis. And 
it does not include in the algorithm the other findings of other types of dysbiosis, say, you know, enteropathogens. So nothing from the PCR for bacteria, yeast, and viruses, nothing from culture or, you know, uh, candida. So it's much more akin to and, and a progression from our old view of looking at, say, the beneficial bacteria and saying, wow, you know, you got a really bad score there. So that's insufficiency dysbiosis. This takes it further, looks at a much more expanded view of the clinically significant bacteria and says, this situation is dysbiotic. And what's fascinating is so many times it, uh, the clinicians on calls will say, you know, they, they almost act like we have a crystal ball or a magic eight ball or something because we see these patterns. We see a dysbiosis index of four or five and they immediately say, yeah, but there's no pathogens. Well, this is a different type of dysbiosis. We get different types of dysbiosis. And um, what this is many times, it's people on a ketogenic diet, a carnivore diet, um, some crazy extreme diet, um, even in, even published using this model, was mm -hmm. the ability to distinguish, you know, and, and characterize dysbiosis associated with a severely restricted um, low FODMAP diet. So it's really panning out. Um, and as you know, so many people, when they look at stool analysis, especially in the past, um, they were looking for something to nuke. And so many people yes. had a hard time with the concept of insufficiency dysbiosis. But I now, now I think that the people are really recognizing that, you know, they're within certain bounds. There, there is a, a normal core to the microbiome. And when you stray outside of that, the bounds of that, you can even get GI and systemic symptoms. Yeah. associated with dysbiosis that don't entail a pathogen yet. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> right. That's right. So then you can layer in the rest of the investigations. Mm -hmm. You know, folks, I just wanted to um, to let you know that we're, we're going to grab some of those references from David and we'll put them on the show notes page. So for instance, you can look at the dysbiosis test um, as, you know, in IBD, IBS, and in healthy individuals, we can link to that. We'll find that um, the FODMAP uh, study that was published. We'll just pull some of it together because it is incredibly useful and it's, so much, it's validating. I'm, you know, I'm a naturopathic physician and of course we've been talking about dysbiosis long before it was chic to talk about. Well, you guys have as well. Long, be long before anybody even acknowledged it was a real word. Um, and this is validating the kind of effort that they've gone into um, figuring out these 45 microbes and then what kind of you know, imbalanced situations result in a dysbiotic or a healthy gut, you know, and the severity of the dysbiosis, like how significantly it needs to be acted upon. How do we, so just before we move into the rest of the test, so you've got, you know, a, a, a core dysbiosis index score, which would be a higher number. I mean, how do we think about um, our interventions. If this is the piece of information, how do we think about what we're going to do with this particular individual? Like, how do we stratify our approach? Well, just just like you would, except with more data, with more information, just as you would deal with, you know, gross insufficiency dysbiosis. 
So the, the primary things that I look at, I, I don't get lost in the weeds with all 45 of the targets. To be honest with you, some of those bacteria I can't pronounce. And some of those, there's just not a lot of clinical data. But as I said, they fit in the model such that the model with 98% confidence could I discern between dysbiosis and normal biosis. But what I look for are the, are the classic things that one would look for, you know, the, the key um, butyrate producers um, and primarily within the Firmicutes. Uh, phyla, the, lac the lacnospiraceae, the F. prosnitzi, up to 14% of a healthy microbiome, even the Eubacterium rectal, um, bifido, which is not a butyrate producer, but acetate, uh, and that can be converted to butyrate, and even some of the Clostridium species. And also, very importantly, is to look at those butyrate-producing bacteria which feed forward for maintaining the integrity of the mucosal barrier primarily, not primarily, but in large part through the induction of the release of those mucins and that mucus barrier, looking at the balance of say F. prosnitzi um, and versus the uh, mucolytic specialists that actually tear down the mucus um, barrier, such as uh, Ruminococcus narvus, uh, and even, you know, the, the bacteria of the year, Acromantia mucinifla. Um, <laughs> you know, and also looking at the pro-inflammatory, say, proteobacter uh, bacteria species versus the anti-inflammatories, again, the F. prosnitzi, Acromantia, and others. So, you know, it does take a little bit of relearning, but you can spot those key ones very quickly. And to be honest with you, so many of those, uh, even especially those dietary situations that I talked about, mm -hmm. um, you, you find a very similar pattern. And, and as you know, you, you don't supplement with acromancia or F. prosnitzi. Um, but the easiest way to upregulate their colonization is by providing them with the food that they need. And, you know, we get back to the soluble fibers. Right, right. Okay, so just a couple of thoughts on that. We can, as clinicians, sort of enter into uh, the laboratory test from a variety of different levels, depending on our interest. So yeah. you, could do, you could do a drill down on all of the microbes and you can access your tech staff easy enough and walk through. Um, detailed discussions. And you always have a good interpretive guide, you know, an individualized interpretive guide at the end of the report. So people can take a look at the key findings and read a little bit more about them at the end of the report. So, yeah. So, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. And we're also just finalizing, you know, the resource uh, or user's guide, if you will, to, to, that'll really help with, because like I said, <laughs> Some a lot of people will, will be embarrassed to try to pronounce some of the names and, and some of the pronunciations I get when I'm talking to clinicians is, is really funny. I know what they mean. Yeah. Um, but there's there's just some some really yeah, there's some bizarre, crazy ones. It's yeah. true. It's true. But we're gonna list we're gonna link to the publications on how they created the index so you know that even if they're not obvious major players to us in clinical practice, that they really informed the dysbiosis index and it's cool. I just really, I, I just, I love it. I think it's a great tool. I think it's actionable for us. So 
the other piece is that if you decide that you if you don't have the time and practice to do a drill down or you're just going to kind of piecemeal your the expansion of your understanding there are key findings on page one so there's the score there or the the index and then right below are the key findings so i'm looking at a patient's test in front of me who had you know, she was in the yellow zone so there's a little bit of an imbalance there if i look at key findings her elastase is low boom her ph is too alkaline her iga is low and then I can see that she's got, you know, some insufficient key players um, in, it, well, in, including fecobacterium pretzinicides, very low. So off the bat, I've got easy, actionable stuff on page one. Um, so anyway, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a new test for us and we need to wrap our heads around it to a certain extent, but you'll also find it really actionable. And I think the layout was nice. Um, all right, so then now let's talk about, uh, you know, the Luminex, you know, the next aspect the, of, the, um, of the 360. Yeah, the, the GI pathogens, which um, was based on, uh, you probably remember the old BioFire test, which was the original FDA-approved test. Um, and uh, that's used in hospitals. I, I'd say that hospitals have basically stopped doing culture. Um, because these are the 23 most common causes of reasons why people present in the hospital, primarily with diarrheogenic disease. And so, again, these are bacteria, viruses, and parasites. And um, instead of reporting on a relative scale compared to a reference population, these are just positive or negative. So, and, and that's because with, with things like... Um, uh, Vibrio cholera. There, there's no reference. There's no reference value. Okay. There's no clinically acceptable level of Vibrio cholera, and the the Luminex platform for the pathogens detects all levels. It can detect down to one organism per microliter of of this the still wow. specimen submitted. Um, but along with that, um, and I got this question the other day, someone was very concerned about, yeah, well, and, and actually, uh, unlike most people was saying, I'm just, I don't know about PCR. It just seems like there's a lot of false positives. And, and I pointed out that there may be false positives. There's two different kinds of false positives. One, you can have false positives from a bogus PCR platform. So let, let's just disregard that. That's not the case here. But with the GI pathogens, the FDA cleared test, it, you can have a positive because it's so sensitive yeah. that you could be picking up residual DNA from a, a recent past infection. And so, and actually years ago, this occurred, and a classic example was for C. diff, toxin-producing yes. C. diff. Exactly. And there was a there was a big collection of of um, key microbiologists, and they were trying to decide whether they should use this test or not because it was so sensitive. Um, because their biggest concern was docs acting on a positive C diff toxin producing um, C difficile um, when in fact the symptoms weren't present. The long story short, at the end of that meeting, they said, "No, this is clinically important data." Number one, up to 20%, maybe 15 to 20% of adults in the normal population are in fact carriers. 
And that's important to know. No, you don't treat it if they don't present, you know, with the, the, the common symptoms of C. diff associated disease. And then secondly, um, it's just an education thing for clinicians. You look at the patient and, you know, I've said this many times, I've been doing this for 23 years and I'll be the first person to say, you're treating a patient, not a lab report. If your patient isn't complaining of profuse diarrhea, you know, three to six times a day, and yet they're positive for C. diff toxin producing, you don't treat, okay? You mark it off as a carrier and you investigate whether they in fact may have had it um, relatively recently. And because of that sensitivity, it's also our position that you don't retest for cure, even with symptoms, until at least three, three weeks after treatment, because there will be residual DNA. I mean, that's, that's the beauty and also the downside of PCR. It's so darn sensitive that you're gonna pick up stuff, but you just have to use your, your clinical know-how and treat the patient. So let me, so my experience is, is what you've outlined, um, identifying um, C. diff toxins in somebody who's already been treated. Well, actually, and it's not coming up on culture. So I'm just thinking of one patient in particular who continued to have multiple loose bowel movements um, and discomfort, but she was being treated actually at a university hospital on the West Coast. And she was always negative um, when, they were at, when they were looking for the toxins via the method that they were using. And, um, but, she was always, but she was positive on, on this technology. And so we went, so I wanted her, it was, it was actually, it was disruptive. The, the number of loose bowel movements she was experiencing was disruptive for her and she was sustaining weight loss. And I mean, there was definitely a problem. But they, mm -hmm. and, and she would have been a, a good candidate for FMT. And so we were mm -hmm. going back and forth. I, I, and they were doing it at this, at this particular hospital, but they refused to um, let her into that program, unfortunately. So we addressed it, you know, just using our functional medicine and she responded, but it was a relatively involved protocol. Um, you know, a lot of probiotics, a lot of sac, sac you know, some periodic antimicrobial botanicals, but you know, and, and dietary changes. Um, so it would have been nice to have a little bit more of an aggressive intervention with her. And she'd already been through a whole bunch of vancomycin, and so that wasn't wasn't a, a, a useful route, but. Um, the, so the sensitivity was useful and she would continue to be symptomatic. Um, the, but when you say we absolutely don't treat, I understand and respect that. If somebody's not symptomatic and you see the presence of the toxins, which we do sometimes, you, we don't go after the C. diff aggressively with pharma. However, wouldn't it in your mind, and you do, there's other areas of the test we can look at, but wouldn't the presence of a C. diff carrier, would you consider that in the dysbiosis column? I mean, it's an it's a potential opportunist. Well, it's a, it can move into pathog potentially pathogenic. What, what, what do you well, think? Well, I, I, it's an incredibly potentially aggressive uh, yeah. opportunist. It's like, you know, the nasty in-laws. Um, <laughs> And it, it and, and and let me back up just a little bit and and emphasize and and that you know there are very varying degrees of the symptoms like you were describing you know just you know, um, 
inconvenient loose bowels. Um, yes. Some people have very profuse cases. Yeah. And of course, we know there's vancomycin resistant. Yes. Um, what's interesting with carriers is carriers, if they go into a hospital um, very commonly and they're put on antibiotics, yeah, pretty much when you go into a hospital, you knock out lactobacillus. And there's lots of research on this. It's, it's when that lactobacillus um, class goes down, the C. diff um, rears its ugly head. And so one of the things that you know, might be considered is more aggressive treatment of uh, lactobacillus. For sure. Yeah, lactobacillus rhamnosus specifically, I think there's some interesting mm -hmm. research on it. Um, and it was helpful in, in her case. And I used more, I, you know, for anybody interested. I, I, she, she dosed multiple times a day in pretty high amounts um, before we were able to control her. Um, but yeah, I think, I think when someone's asymptomatic, as, as those of us in integrative medicine, we can just, it's another piece of the sort of general imbalance puzzle that we can work on with diet and lifestyle and so forth. Right. Um, all right, what else do we want to say about this, about this test? We've got viruses, we've got um, parasites. I mean, what any, you know, the sensitivity with um, parasites versus microscopy? Yes, um, and it's the same way when, whether you're comparing um, molecular techniques to O&P microscopy or whether you're comparing to microbiology and culture. Um, it's not uncommon to see positive by PCR yet negative by O&P um, or culture. Um, it's more sensitive. Um, and it's not a, a gross discrepancy within the report. It's just you have to look at the power of each of the two methods. Now, so, so why do we still use uh, O&P? Uh, why do we still use culture? Guess what? We don't have that many probes, even for pathogens, compared to the 30 additional parasites that we can readily identify by O&P. So albeit with less sensitivity, we have a much greater scope of coverage. Same thing with culture. Um, we can culture and we can identify over 1400 different species and gen genera of bacteria and yeast by culture, and which is far, far greater than any number of probes anyone's ever gonna have. And so that's why I really emphasize the addition and the complementation of the two methods. They both have their strengths and limitations. You put them together and you have a great team. Yeah, I agree. I actually agree. I'm kind of, kind of happy that, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're doing that for the reasons that, um, you know, that you stated. I mean, in culture has been, you know, we've successfully treated people over the you know, many, many years based on culture data. Um, it's nice to have both, but. Um, all right, what else do we have on this test? Um, let's see, talk about, you know, talk about some of the chemistries. I think one of the reasons I love your, your test is that you're pretty comprehensive with um, the chemistries. Yeah, the, the chemistries are critical, you know, the, the microbes and 
and they're telling you one thing, but, um, you know, I've always, you know, my, my background in metabolism and stuff, I also want to know what's going on metabolically in that community. Um, what, you know, are, is there induction of organic or non or inorganic, uh, in, in inflammation. So both the, um, IBD markers, the, the calprotectin, uh, and lactoferrin, uh, and, and the lysozyme for non-IBD inflammation. So we're covering inflammation um, as deeply as we can. And having said that, um, we do see cases where we'll see calprotectin uh, significantly elevated and lactoferrin not. And we continue to evaluate that. Um, but I did find one paper um, a couple of years ago where the uh, researchers were discussing uh, differential activation of calprotectin versus lactoferrin, or lighting up in stool, I should say, uh-huh. um, uh, with respect to the location of the inflammation in the bowel, whether it be upper or UC, huh. something like that. There hasn't been a whole lot in that regard, but you know, for now, um, we're going to include both because we don't want to miss it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's really handy to have both. Um, how about the, you guys are, have been writing about um, beta-glucuronidase and some of the advances regarding um, specifically gastrointestinal beta-glucuronidase. So you guys are looking at that and what, what's the new research on it? We are, and um, you know, for a long time, um, people would not use our stool test because we didn't have glucuronidase. And the reality is, now that we've added it, um, we actually don't see very many elevated glucuronidases. So, huh. a- as everybody knows, you know, the body works real hard to glucuronidate as part of phase two to um, try to irreversibly get rid of um, toxins that have been processed uh, in the liver specifically. Um, and the beta-glucuronidase uh, works, can work against that by deconjugating uh, and, and reintroducing the toxin back into the situation. So um, there was about a 20-year lull or at least, at least a 15-year lull in research around beta-glucuronidase. We were all familiar with the elevated beta-glucuronidase and the elevated um, circulating uh, estrogens in premenopausal women, mm-hmm. um, and the fascinating story of the grilled meat and grilled fish-derived um, um, carcinogen, abbreviated IQ, the name's just too long to pronounces it's a quinoline. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, um, so that stuff was around and, and people were, you know, okay, well, if we find that we're going to use the, the calcium uh, D-glucaric acid to try to inhibit that. Um, but recently, and, and as early as last year, um, there was a, a hallmark paper. I mean, it's just fascinating. I think I, I no, I just sent you the newsletter, but um, um, anyhow, this group, I believe that it was from Korea, um, they have identified, characterized, sequenced hundreds of different beta-glucuronidases derived from bacteria across all uh, of the major phyla. 
Um, interestingly, they have very different structure, different structures in certain um, uh, component of the enzyme, and as a result, very different um, aglycone substrate specificities. So, so this this paper really pointed out that hey, you know, we not only there's no such thing as just beta glucuronidase. In fact, it's called GUS, G-U-S. And um, that's what's happened in biochemistry. Enzymes are now being called the name of the gene location <laughs> from which it came. So us old biochemists have to, you know, just get up with the, uh, with the language. Um, but there's hundreds of different bacterial-derived uh, guses. There's um, that derived from the gastrointestinal epithelium and even from the liver. Did you know that there's even circulating GUS activity? And That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's associated with jaundice wow. uh, in infants. Um, okay. So this, this stuff is, it's a whole new world of research. Um, and, and the key points I wanna make about it are that I think in, in, in the future, not near future, we're going to be able to much more specifically evaluate the positive versus negative GUS activities, that is with respect to their ability to handle different toxins versus, um, for example, um, the essential GUS activity that actually enhances the systemic, bio, uh, systemic availability of flavonoids, flavonoids that come in in our diet that have anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, antiviral, and anti-tumor effects. And my dream is that someday we're going to be able to have a panel of different GUS activities. Um, and it may be just at a molecular level versus at a specific substrate activity level. But I think my, my probably my most important clinical point is that when you do see high beta glucuronidase GUS activity, we all need to get used to GUS, my cousin GUS. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, the, the old adage of, yeah, calcium D-glucaric acid, you know, 500 milligrams a couple of times a day. No, you look at the kinetics of and the conversion to the active inhibitory metabolite. Number one, the bioavailability is low. The conversion to that active inhibitory metabolite from glucaric acid is low. And its half-life, inhibitory half-life is only about five hours and so you're really talking about, you know, dosing uh, at least 500 milligrams um, three times a day, preferably with food when you have the bile flow. But even that, I, I mean, that's, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to look at the uh, restoration of the microbiome. You get an imbalance in the microbiome, major disruption you're going to see a, a greater preponderance of, say, the uh, not-so-beneficial GUS activities. And then probably even more important, like with all toxicology, remove the source of induction of that GUS activity. For example, that meat-derived carcinogen, IQ, um, yeah. it actually induces more beta-glucuronidase activity. So it's like, you know, and which in turn enhances the exposure half time 
uh, in the host. So there's so much more to learn and, and even at the clinical level. But for right now, I'd say the clinical interpretation of test results really isn't changed. Um, and clinical intervention, I'd say, in addition to considering using the calcium D-glucaric acid, uh, really think in along the lines of a toxicologist and try to remove the source of induction, um, just like removing the source of exposure, you know, with any kind of environmental toxic. So it, if we don't have a good drill down into, if we can't, if, if we're not going to, if we can't figure out where the, what's upregulating, if they haven't just, if they haven't gone on a, you know, a, a barbecue binge over the last month <laughs> or so, I mean, if we do a general five-hour protocol, if we, you know, clean diet up in a general way and address the other imbalances that, you know, are clear from the test and from their clinical presentation, would you expect that to adequately address it and then maybe go in with calgiglucurate later? Well, I think you could do that concomitantly. Um, and secondly, um, no doubt there's other um, chemical entities that are going to induce um, expression of this yeah. enzyme. Uh, we can't possibly know all that at this time. So, so definitely, I'm not saying don't use the calcium D-glucaric acid. I'm just saying consider the pharmacokinetics um, of that, you know, very, very simple benign um, uh, acid and um, dose it appropriately. I mean, you look at the literature uh, for really effective inhibition, they're talking about up to three grams. and a half grams a day. Yeah, it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot to it's take lot. every day. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so and I you just can't do it. You can't, you, it's not no. sustainable unless you're really concerned, I would say about breast cancer or, you know, exactly. it, it, it's, exactly. it's, I mean, it's a, I think it can be a really important molecule to use, but you're right. It's, it's, it's not sustainable. Right. Um, well, great. That's, you know, it's wonderful. It's, it's always nice when, you know, a, a laboratory seizes one of these old um, molecules that we've seen forever and we've been thinking about forever and, and bring new science behind to it. Indican is another one that's gotten a whole new, all new wings. <laughs> and that was an old school um, urine marker that we used to, oh, yeah. well, before it predated me, like, you know, some of my mentors would run it in their clinical practice. A little. Well, some of your mentors, you perform the test right in, in the office. Yeah, that's exactly right. I know, yeah. I know. And now there's just all sorts of cool science on, you know, endocrine and, and neurodegenerative conditions and um, good reason for us to pay attention to it. Okay. I want to just circle back. I just have a couple more questions I want to ask you about um, on the test. And I, I guess, you know, using the, using the test, people want to be able to al um, evaluate small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And what are your thoughts on using stool test for those evaluations? Uh, yeah, there, there's clearly no diagnostic indicator in stool at this point um, that can specifically say, yes, that's uh, SIBO uh, or even CIFO. Um, that may happen in the profile. Um, uh, we, we communicate with the genetic analysis company, the, 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 comp the, uh, the group that 
produces our, our platform for PCR. And they're aware that we are interested in looking at a specific, trying to identify a specific profile um, uh, within the context of that dysbiosis index model um, that might, and this would again have to be validated, you know, yeah. very, very powerful, robustly uh, uh, in, in, at the clinical level. That may be coming. Um, short of that, um, as everyone says, you know, short of a direct aspiration from the small bowel and, you know, applying PCR to that, it, we, and that's not even practical. I mean, not many patients are going to opt for that. Not many clinicians are going to want to do that. Um, but CFO, uh, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, is a, is a very interesting. There was a paper in 2015. Um, where they found that it was, I think it was 82%, I say 80% of the true confirmed CFL patients uh, were on proton pump inhibitors. No surprise there, right? I mean, you, you raise the pH so much. Um, um, we can't do that. You know, you can, I guess you could use a capsule and, and monitor pH on the way through. That's also pretty extreme. Um, but for CFO, um, one way that we look at that now is, as you know, um, sometimes you don't see yeast cultured uh, or identified. And, you know, we can identify over 180 different species of yeast. It, it's spooky with Molitov. Wow. Um, but when they don't culture, and yet by backup microscopy, you see moderate to many, say, in two or three stool specimens, then you have to say to yourself, you know, is that consistent um, with the patient presentation? Is that consistent with CFO where, and we'll just say, this is a theory at this point that because the yeast may be so high overgrowth, so high in the bowel that they don't survive transit um, through the entire bowel as to be culturable. Um, and so they may not be viable to grow uh, yeah. in the laboratory, but you can still see them. So my suggestion um, within consultations is, you know, if you, if you see moderate to many uh, yeast microscopically, but not by culture, um, and it's consistent with the presentation of the patient, then consider treatment. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, don't have any guidelines for what may or may not work, but you know a, a darn good fallback is always a good um, good um, a garlic extract. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So as you know, Miss Anna Brevibacter Smith I is kind of all the way is is something that we're looking at on stool tests more and more often, and um, him and Tal published on it recently and. Um, and 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 actually, well, he's arguing that it can be in the small in the in the intestine in the full gastrointestinal tract. So it does colonize the lower mm -hmm. GI tract, and therefore he wants to rename methane SIBO intestinal um, microbial overgrowth. So or intestinal methane overgrowth. This is mm -hmm. archaic. Um, what I mean, so so it's it, it's possible that we could actually find some utility in looking at stool methanobrevibacter smithii. So, would you guys? When would you bring that into the test, or would you consider that? 
Well, we would definitely consider it, um, but I'd say that I think that we should be a little careful in assuming that that is causal. Um, it's sort of like, well, if you're looking for something and it's positive and the clinical symptoms are there, therefore it's the cause, not always the case. It right. may be informative, um, yep. but we certainly can't say at this point that it's causal yep. um, because there's so many bacteria that produce methane. Um, and, and that may happen to be, you know, one of the bacteria of the month that, that people are reporting. Therefore, it's assumed to be the cause. Um, would we consider adding it? Absolutely. Um, again, I really like to do things based on whether it really is uh, valid or not. So, you know, do I want to wait until clinical trials are, are done? Not necessarily. Um, but again, it gets back to number one, um, methanobacterium uh, smithi was not to be found to be a significant contributor in the dysbiosis index model mm. that we use. Right. However, that's not to say that it's not important. Um, again, that was respect, with respect to dysbiosis, IBS, IBD, and uh, now we've also seen um, obesity. Um, but as always, we're not going to just, you know, rush into the lab and, and develop, come up with a probe for it without, I mean, we really would rather have, you know, a very highly vetted and validated probe. Yes. Um, but that's very doable. It's yeah. Very well, you know, I will say that I have seen over-treatment. I mean, certainly, you know, much, much over-treatment with over-interpretation of results. So I, I appreciate you you know, wanting to pay attention to its significance. And I know that, you know, just using your, um, the, the group in Norway who, who are developing your probes and, and I'm sure there's some, you know, some solid science behind it is, you know, it's, it's, it's useful. Um, all right, let me just, let's see what else I wanna ask you. I think we're in the closing minutes here. Um, you threw out the dysbiosis test and obesity of course, for a period there, everyone was looking at Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes ratio. That was just all the, you know, all the rage. I have to say, clinically, I haven't seen it bear out looking at it over the years. But talk, yeah. So talk to me about how we might use the JAG360. Yeah, the the as I call it, the F to B ratio, and you can interpret any way you want there. I never was a fan of that. I mean, the hardest data came from, from stinking nice. rodent models. Yeah. And then you had some from some very restrictive uh, human studies. But just in 2019, a, a mega meta-analysis, that's a little redundant, um, <laughs> but it, it clearly debunked that, uh, let's just say it's, it's extremely, an extremely equivocal concept. Yeah. I and basically what what the investigators of another study found was that you really need to go deeper taxonomically in that evaluation and simply looking at you know a two phyla a ratio of two phyla at the phyla level uh -huh. doesn't cut it um, at all. In our test, um, GI three sixty, we do report on twenty five different uh, formicides. Um, targets and 10 different bacteroid DDs targets. 
Um, but we don't have robust um, clinical backing there, and I don't think anybody does. But we do report those, and we do, as you've seen on the first page of the report, report the patient's web. And so, you know, based on the six primary phyla, of course, including Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes. And you can look at the relative plotting of those two phyla and form your own opinion. Um, personally, I've always had a problem with any kind of excuse for overweight and obesity, trying to say, oh, it's my darn bacteria, when in fact we know that the diet is such a driving factor, uh, even in that simple ratio right there. Um, Bottom line is this is a, a something else that we're looking to the um, genetic analysis people to try to develop a very robust ratio of, or not necessarily even a ratio, maybe a, maybe a unique dysbiosis index that might pertain, uh, and I would predict to say it would pertain to not only obesity, metabolic syndrome, uh, oh. and type two diabetes. Um, and we're already seeing um, higher dysbiosis indexes in obesity uh, and type 2 diabetic patients um, oh. using the current model. So I think if any, anybody's going to come up with that, it would be, you know, that kind of approach where you have a targeted approach with a clinical outcome associated with it. It's, it's, it's happening. I, I, think the, I think the dysbiosis test and the science behind it is so cool. And again, folks, we're going to link to as many studies as I can get from, from David um, to just you know give you more information on it. We'll put a sample report on there so you can actually see the web that he's talking about, see the index, the score, and you know just walk through the test as a whole. It really is a beautiful um, test. I mean, you, I, I know the level of attention and um, you know just the the science that you guys put behind your efforts. And I just, I, I appreciate the work that you've done here. So thanks for joining me today and, and oh, walking us through it. Always a pleasure, Kara. Anytime. <laughs>